If you keep Mark chapter 2 open, that will be helpful for us. Um, A few weeks ago, Kieran kicked off a series we are calling Apprentices. Uh, An apprentice is someone who comes under and learns from a master or skilled expert. Uh, They go with the experts, they watch them, and they're instructed by them to to ultimately do what they do. Uh, Kieran mentioned how uh, this is a more appropriate picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like uh, than simply the term follower, which many of us use, which we might take that, there's nothing wrong with that word in and of itself, but some people take that, uh, that word follower to mean the same thing as a groupie or a fan. Uh, and Jesus invites us into active participation in the kingdom, learning from him, becoming more like him, and ultimately looking like him, doing what he did. Uh, It's more than simply being a fan of Jesus. It's um, being a participant, um, becoming like him. In our Bible reading tonight, we're given two different stories uh, of some apprentices of Jesus. Um, And although the stories are different and contain different people in different situations, the actions are the same. And tonight, I want to unpack those two stories to see what is being modeled to us by these apprentices. What is it that they are doing Um, And how do we go about doing the same thing in our situation as we try to think of what it means for us to be apprentices of Jesus too? So let's dive right in. Uh, The first story takes place in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. The story is pretty straightforward. It goes like this. Jesus begins preaching inside someone's house. Uh, The crowd is so captivated by Jesus that the house quickly fills up with people. And there are even people outside the house leaning in to listen to Jesus. That's sort of the setup of the story. Uh, A group of men know that Jesus is in the house. They have a friend who is paralyzed. Uh, He is unable to walk. We don't know if this is a a recent disability or if he's been this way his whole life. Nevertheless, that's his reality. Uh, His friends, and I would call them apprentices of Jesus. I'll get to why I call them that in a minute. They bring this man to the house where Jesus is in. But there's no way to get into the house. There's too many people. They're not deterred, however, so they formulate a plan. They get up on the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof and lower the man down in front of Jesus. Uh, Just a word really quickly on how this could have happened. Uh, Here's a story, or here's a 3D rendering on the screen. Uh, Hopefully this will come up of what a first century Israelite house would have looked like. Um, so that's kind of a, kind of what houses back then looked like. Most houses were typically made of st- a mixture of stone and clay and brick. Uh, and many Israelite houses had this upper balcony or deck um, above the main living space with stairs or a ladder that, um, lead, that would lead up to it. So in the story, Jesus is in the, the house, in the, in the bottom section here. Um, and the crowd is both inside the house and outside the house, sort of looking in through the windows there. And most likely these men would have ascended the, the stairs or the ladder and then used some sort of tool uh, to bash through the roof. Now, this would have taken some time. Like, it, it's not like houses were flimsy or whatever. The fact that you could walk up there and stand up there meant... The house was pretty solid. And so they probably uh, it would have taken a while. Uh, it, would, it would not have been an easy task. Uh, 
And I've always been curious to what the crowd was thinking while this was happening, right? Can, can you imagine this? You're, you're sitting there, Jesus is talking, you're mesmerized by what he's saying, and uh, you're just vibing with him, and all of a sudden these flecks of dust start sprinkling down on your head, and you're like, what? Okay, that's kind of weird, or whatever. Jesus is still talking. And then all of a sudden, like, some bits of rock, boom, just start falling on the ground, and you're like, really, what's going on? Jesus is smiling, he's still talking. He just keeps going, right? He doesn't stop, even though this something's happening. And all of a sudden, tink, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, you see there's a, a, a small hole in the roof. And you look up, and then someone's looking down at you. And you're like, huh? What's that guy doing? And then all of a sudden, that, that little hole becomes a big hole. And then all of a sudden, four faces are looking at you from above. And you're just like, what is going on? And the guy who owns the house is like, my roof! What's going on with my roof? And then all of a sudden, some else, someone else is lowered down on this mat by ropes in front of Jesus. And you're like, what the heck is going on right now? Right? It, it would have been a really crazy scene. And I think that's kind of what the gospel looks like in action. Right? It's strange. It's perplexing, it's uncomfortable for some, it's invasive of your space, it's awesome. Now, let's read the rest of the story. Uh, the, the man gets lowered in front of Jesus, uh, Jesus finally stops what he's talking, uh, what he's saying, and he looks at the guy and he says, son, your sins are forgiven, which seems like a strange thing to say in that moment, and a theological debate begins with some who are in the crowd. Now, Jesus is not having any of it and says what this man really needs is spiritual healing, not merely physical healing. So then he heals the guy and uh, the man picks up his mat and walks out uh, in full view of everybody. And uh, the crowd is there. Well, they're amazed, right? They've, they've never seen anything like this. But that's the story. But we skipped over an important part of the story. Um, especially the, the, the point of where the apprentice of Jesus comes into this story. When Jesus forgives and heals the man, whose faith does he acknowledge yielded that result? Have a look at verse 5. Um, it doesn't say when Jesus saw the paralyzed man's faith. It says when Jesus saw whose faith? It's not a rhetorical question. When Jesus saw whose faith? The friend's faith, their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of this man's friends, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, this man's friends are apprentices of Jesus. They may have not been included in the list of the 12 disciples, but they certainly had what it took. And they had a few certain apprentice-like attributes. Uh, and here's what they displayed. There's five things. You might want to write these down. I don't know if you got a little handout on your way in. Um, but here are five things, five, um, a five-fold pattern of what apprentice of Jesus looks like. Uh, first, they knew that Jesus was unlike anyone else. Secondly, they recognized their friend's need. Third, they understood Jesus is what their friend needed. Fourth, they intentionally brought their friend to Jesus. And finally... They believed Jesus would act in their friend's life. We'll leave this on the screen for a while if you want to write that down. We're going to come back to it and explain that more in a moment. Uh, but before we do, let's look at our second story. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 uh, and 14 say that Jesus is walking along um, the lake and he spots a man named Levi. Uh, Matthew's version of this story um, 
calls him calls the same man Matthew, as in the author of the, the the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was likely his Greco-Roman name that he used since he worked with the Romans. So he he chose a name that they would sort of say and understand. Uh, he changed his name from Levi to Matthew when he worked with those people, which is significant. Uh, it was Levi, aka Matthew, same person. Uh, it was his job to collect taxes from his people, the Jewish people, and give that money to the Romans. Uh, he was a turncoat, a betrayer of his own people, hence why he has two different names. Uh, yet as Jesus walks along, he sees Levi working, doing the job of taking money from God's people and giving it to their hated pagan overlords, and he calls out to him two simple words. Follow me. Uh, now, We're not told the reason, but immediately Levi gets up, he leaves his work, his money, his old life behind, and he apprentices himself to Jesus, which is pretty phenomenal, right? What happened? Personally, I'd like to think that Levi saw Jesus' call as a welcome back into the family of God, that he robbed and cheated and betrayed his own friends and family and was condemned and scorned and hated. But here comes this Jewish rabbi uh, who invites him into a new life. And so without hesitation, Levi leaves it all behind to follow Jesus. At least that's how I think the story went. Um, I don't know because it doesn't detail that, but that's how I think it went. Levi then, perhaps out of the overflow of his joy uh, that he's found in Jesus, does something. Um, Right away, that very night, he throws a party, as you do. Uh, And it's not just any party. Levi invites everyone he knows, um, others who are the dregs of society. So other tax collectors and people with awful reputations, sinners. Levi invites all of them to come meet Jesus. And again, the story continues. Um, As the story continues, this creates a problem uh, for some people who think themselves to be in the good, in the right. They question how someone like Jesus could possibly party with scoundrels and cheats. And Jesus responds that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. If you think you're right in your own eyes, you won't be interested in me. But those who recognize their need for God, well, that's, that's why I'm here. But how does this story relate to being an apprentice of Jesus? Well... Levi exhibited those same five characteristics of being an apprentice. Can you throw those back up on the screen? First, he knew that Jesus was like unlike anyone else. It's why he got up and left his life behind, right? There's something that he recognized uh, about Jesus that was unlike anything else out there, and he just happily left it behind. Secondly, after this happened, he recognized his friend's needs, Right? He looked around and he said, these people that I know are sinners just like me. They're longing for friendships just like me. They want more to this life just like me. Third, he understood that Jesus is the one to meet his friend's needs. So he does something. Fourth, he intentionally brought his friends to Jesus by throwing a party. And fifth, he did this because he believed that Jesus would act in their lives. Uh, in both of these stories, we have this five-fold pattern happening. That when you spend time with Jesus, even if it's only for a minute, like in these cases, you will recognize that he is unlike anyone else. That he's unique. As the old hymn goes, there's just something about that name. 
Uh, He's the one who died and rose again that you might be welcomed into God's family. He's the one who takes your baggage, your sin, your rebellion upon himself on the cross and offers you unconditional love and grace in return. If you understand these things about Jesus, like really understand them deep within your core, it will lead you as an apprentice to move on to step two, which is that you will see that every human is in need of something. Maybe your need is forgiveness. Maybe it's significance. Uh, I don't know what what brought you to Jesus. Uh, But when we see Jesus for who he really is, we start understanding not just our needs, but the needs of those around us. That my mom, she longs to be told that she is worth something. That my neighbor wants their broken family restored. That my friend wants to escape the grind of work, pay bills, sleep, repeat. Uh, When your needs are met, it opens your eyes, not just to your own needs and how those needs got filled, but the needs of those around you, which moves you to apprentice level three, that when you know Jesus and see the needs of those around you, you begin to understand that only Jesus can meet the needs of your friends. Jesus enters into our story and fulfills our deepest longings, Uh, not just Our immediate need, like the paralyzed man in the story, he had obviously this immediate need of physical healing, but he had a deeper need of his sins being forgiven. Then if you truly believe Jesus is amazing, see the needs of those around you, and believe that Jesus can meet those needs, it will lead you to intentionally bring your friends to Jesus, or bring Jesus to your friends. So four men carry their friend, dig a hole in a roof, and lower him to Jesus' feet. Another man throws a party at his house and invites all the people around him that are just like him to meet Jesus. He does something intentionally. And finally, we do this, hopefully, because that we believe that Jesus will act in our friends' lives. And maybe this is why many of us don't bring our friends to Jesus. Um, maybe we don't believe that Jesus will actually do anything. That that person's so hard or so beyond saving That we just, uh, why bother? But all the apprentices in this story believed that Jesus would do precisely that. Um, Neither the four men nor Levi could have predicted how the story of their friends would have turned out. But at the very minimum, they believed that Jesus cared about their friends as much as they did. And that by bringing them to Jesus intentionally, Jesus would respond. Okay. Okay. You might think, that sounds great, that makes sense. This movement definitely has some merit to it. But then I think, but how do I do that? Right? Uh, How do I recognize the needs of those around me? How do I bring my friends to Jesus? How can I have faith that God's going to show up and do something? Um, How? I do want my friends to meet Jesus, but I'm scared, or I don't know how, or I don't know where to start. Uh, Well, I'd like to finish by giving us some practical tips and explaining how these things might help us to get started to be apprentices who bring our friends to Jesus. Um, Last year, I read two different books that have been, both of them have been extremely helpful, not just sort of biblically and theoretically, but practically in being an apprentice who brings my friends to Jesus. Um, A photo is coming on the screen of these two books. Um, and you can check them out for yourself. One of them is called Gospel Fluency by a church planter named Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, the other one is named um, is called Evangelism in a Skeptical World by Sam Chan. Uh, both of these books have been 
so, so, so helpful to me as I've wrestled with how do I bring my friends to Jesus? How do I share Jesus with those around me? Um, I have both of them, and you can borrow them sometime from me if you want, or you can order them from Kurong or whatever. Um, the good thing about both of these books is they both have extra resources. They have study guides that you can take and study. They have DVDs that go along with them. Um, there's websites around each of these books that have a lot more resources. So please write them down, check them out. Um, they'll be really helpful. Um, I'm going to summarize some of the main points uh, that I've garnered from these two books. I'm probably not going to say them as as eloquently as you can read in those books, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to do my best. But uh, there are five things, and this is where the back of your sheet, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Five things that these books say of what, what we can start doing. Uh, five methods uh, that we can start to employ of everyday evangelism, of taking those five concepts, that fivefold movement, and applying it into our actual uh, friendships and those around us. So here we go. Number one, how do we live this out practically? Pray continually for our non-Christian friends. The Bible says prayer is powerful and effective. Uh, so if we actually believe that, and we actually believe that Jesus is what our friends need, uh, we will regularly bring them before the throne of God. Not just sort of as a one-off or every once in a while, but regularly. You cannot, through wishful thinking... Um, hope that someone in your life will magically on your own, on their own, approach you and say that they want to believe in Jesus. Can you tell them how? That, that God does do that from time to time in people's lives. I'm not saying that God doesn't work that way. But he, God usually, most of the time, works in accordance with our heartfelt desires to see our friends come to know him. That, and that begins by praying and praying continually. So whether you keep a prayer journal or put up post-it notes or program reminders in your phone or whatever, we ought to constantly lift our friends up in prayer. I remember um, some missionaries of ours, uh, former missionaries of ours, uh, Lloyd and Fleur Sutherland, uh, shared last time they were up here, uh, Fleur's dad was particularly hostile to the gospel. And uh, she prayed for him constantly, had friends praying for him constantly, and over decades, over more than a decade, he was like, not interested. This is the furthest person you'd think would ever come to know Jesus. But she and others kept praying, kept praying, kept praying, kept praying. And uh, they didn't give up. And when they, uh, right before they were about to come back, um, they met. With, their dad came to visit them and said that uh, he'd given his life to Jesus. And his whole, his whole life had changed. And just the, the fact that Fleur couldn't believe, well, she did. This is why she did it. She could believe that God answers prayer, especially when you pray. And sometimes it's going to take a while. But when you pray for someone and pray continually, it matters. So pray continually for our non-Christian friends. Point number two, live a life that models Jesus. Uh, I think this should go without saying, but I'll say it just in case it's not apparent. If you tell people about Jesus, but you yourself don't look like a person who's apprenticed to Jesus, why would anyone want to listen? Uh, think of it this way. If you say that Jesus can bring peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, etc., etc., but you yourself display the opposite. You are constantly anxious. You are very impatient. You're mean. You, you, don't, you, you do wicked things, things you shouldn't be doing. You're a really harsh person. I would be much less inclined to listen to you. 
Now, that's not saying that you have to be the perfect person to share Jesus with our friends. That's also a mistake that we make, that I have to be the most holy person and the most Christ-like person, the most educated person, or um, the person who knows the Bible the most, and I can't share Jesus unless I'm all of those things. That's not true either. But it is saying that um, to share Jesus with your friends, you simply need to be someone who strives to display Jesus in your life more often than not. That's it. A lack of holiness does not disqualify you from being someone who can proclaim Jesus. But a lack of desire to be like Jesus does. So live a life that models Jesus. Number three, and this point has a few caveats. uh, Be purposeful in your friendships, in your relationships. What do I mean by that? Uh, Well, if you look at Mark chapter 2, you will see that the four men... Uh, who brought their friend to Jesus, and Levi, did not sit around waiting for their friends to inquire about Jesus. Um, There's a really famous quote that I really love from St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, Maybe you've heard it, where he says, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I don't know if you heard that before. It sounds really cool, right? And for the... I agree, somewhat. That that's what we should be doing. Live, and that's what the previous point was. To live such a life that shows Jesus that we don't need to use words. However, I don't think it's entirely correct. Um, yes, like we just said, our lives should display Jesus to those around us. But we cannot wait and hope that by being that kind of person, by being the most patient person in the room or whatever, that somehow someone will notice and want to know more. We ought to be purposeful. That means that we ought to be proactive in how we go about our relationships. Um, we ought to do something, to take action. Uh, Sam Chan, in his book, has three sub-points on how we do this. Uh, the first one, part A, he says, make your friends their friends. How do we can be purposeful in our relationships? Um, I wish I could explain this at length, but you can um, get this book and read it later. But basically, he says this. Christianity is something rather strange and unbelievable to most people, right? Uh, Especially in our culture today. Like, hey, there's a God who made us, but we turned away from him. And so he sent himself in the flesh who died on the cross, but he came back to life. And now he went into heaven. And if you believe in him, then this God can come into your heart and change you too. It sounds weird, like when you say it out loud sometimes. I'll be honest, right? And that's how people understand it in our culture who haven't grown up in the church or haven't been around Christian people it, it seems rather unbelievable. So what makes something more believable? Well, it's not having more facts to spout off. It's not having evidence or have, even having the best arguments. What is that that makes something more believable? Sam Chan says it's community. It's community. When we invite other Christians into our relationships with our non-Christian friends, all of a sudden, I'm not just the one crazy person trying to model and talk about Jesus. There's many of us. Um, When more people are involved in reaching your friend for Jesus, they'll be more likely to listen because they see how the life of Jesus is lived out loud. Uh, Not just in you, but in others around you. It's, It's a bigger thing. It moves from this personalized individual belief that you yourself have to a movement that has impacted a whole lot of people. And when people see that lived out loud in friendship, in community... That speaks volumes. So make your friends their friends. Secondly, he says, go to their things before you invite them to yours. If your friends invite you into their space and you share in that with them, they'll be more likely to respond when you invite them into your spaces. 
Um, this is something um, that I tried to model when I was a, a youth pastor, that I understood that on a Friday night, I only have two hours with our youth group kids, and that's, that's good, but there's more to their life than just that two hours. They have school, they have family, they have friendships, they have sports. And so to go into those spaces and see that, like, I- I'm going to come to your space and show you Jesus in these spaces as well, it makes them more likely to say, well, you've come and met me here. I'm more likely to come and meet you there where you're at. Inviting someone to church may seem foreign, right? Like, why would I ever want to do that? But if you've come along to the gym with a friend uh, and you've gone out to coffee with them and you've gone to watch the cricket with them or whatever, over time, they'll be more likely to come when you invite them to something, to a men's breakfast or a church service, because you've invested in them. You've done the hard yards. They would probably want to respond, even though that thing seems strange to them. And then lastly, uh, Sam Chan mentions this pattern of coffee, dinner, gospel. He says, friendships are like onions. They're layered. Uh, the outside layer, we have the, the superficial layer of friendships, the everyday stuff. It's what he calls coffee chats, where we'll talk about the weather or talk about sports uh, or talk about our weekend plans or our upcoming holidays. You know those conversations. You're in them most of the time. Most of us are in that space. Um, many of us, uh, our relationships with friends uh, starts and stop in that space, that sort of surface level space because it's it's hard to go deeper but the more he says we meet up and ha- can have those sorts of chats after a while they'll be more likely to come when you invite them to dinner and dinner is more personal someone's been invited into your home it's a longer period of time than meeting someone for coffee um, it's not just a step into your home but a step into your life So at dinner, you might move from the weather and sports to more personal things like family and story and politics and, yeah, why people do the things that they do. And when you can do dinner a few times, then maybe it will lead to conversations about worldview, about values, about beliefs. Why is it that you do that thing that you do? Can you explain that to me? And it's in those spaces where people are more receptive to, to hear and listen to the gospel. Uh, which leads me to one quick announcement that I want to make. Um, one excellent way you can follow this pattern is we have something called an Alpha Course that's coming up. Uh, alpha Course is simply uh, that. It's a dinner and a discussion. It, it's a, a thing that we're intentionally doing as a church because we want to have spaces to invite our friends that is non-threatening, where they can come and sit and enjoy a meal and have conversation and also learn about Jesus. And so Alpha is going to meet where we're thinking. Originally, we're going to do it uh, this month. But now we're, um, we want to think well and hard about how we do this. And give people more time to be intentional and prayerful about who they might want to invite. So most likely, it's going to be happening at the beginning of May. But this is simply an opportunity for you to put those things into action. That you can start thinking about friends that uh, you'd love to introduce to Jesus, to have coffee with them, to have dinner with them, and invite them to go to their spaces in order to invite them into something that you are doing. And so we think Alpha is a great way to do that. Uh, If you'd like more information, if you'd like to be involved, uh, to serve, or just, yeah, know how you can uh, be invitational to those around you, we'd love to have those conversations. So find me or Kieran or Leon, and we'd love to have that chat with you. Um, But yeah, that's an opportunity for you to put this into practice, which leads us to point number four. 
Listen well to the stories our friends find themselves in. So as people open up and start to share um, about their lives, we can listen well. Uh, Hear what is important to them. Hear what makes them who they are, um, what their hopes and dreams are, about why they do what they do. And when someone feels properly listened to, like actually listened to, they will often become more receptive to then listen to you and ask you similar questions that you ask them. We've talked about this idea before. Uh, it's the fancy word for that. It's called resonance. Um, that as we listen to stories, we validate what we've heard and we find commonality in those spaces. Like saying, what I've heard you say is that your family is important to you and that's why you work so hard to provide for them. And I actually think that's what a great reflection of a, of a father looks like. So it's hearing what they say, reciprocating that back, finding commonality, listening well, which then leads us to number five. After we've listened well, we speak Jesus into those stories. So going off that example I just gave you, you might share this about yourself. That as you've listened, have you done the hard yards, you've gone deep, someone has shared something with you, you might then say, I want to be a great father too. I work really hard. I try to make time for my kids. I drive around like a crazy person on Saturday, taking my kids everywhere. But I realize that's not enough. The more I worked uh, to provide for my family, the less time I have for them. And then the time I have with them, uh, because I'm so stressed out and hurried, I, I'm always grumpy. And so they don't enjoy it, and I don't enjoy it. And I feel guilty about it and wish I could provide, but not be overcome by guilt, by not being there. So that's sort of the resonance, right? But then, how do we speak Jesus into the story? Well, in this situation, it might be to say, but the Bible tells me that I don't have to walk around with that sort of guilt. Um, nor do I have to live under this pressure that it's all up to me to provide. That Jesus lived a perfect life, so I don't have to. That he gives me joy beyond my performance as a dad or a husband. Uh, he will take care of us no matter what. And he helps me to have patience when I can't manufacture that on my own. Maybe that's something that you ought to consider in your life. See, the good news about Jesus speaks into every story. And after we are prayerful, purposeful, and listen well, spaces will be created for us to share Jesus. All that being said, it's a long-term thing. We live in an instant culture where we want... Instantly, our friends to share, to, to come to Jesus. So we pray once, we might share Jesus once, and if that doesn't work, well, we give up, and, and then we are like, what's the point? But all this is to say that in most cases, this is a long-term thing. And that, we think, that's good. That gives God space to warm people's hearts and to move. Now, I realize I used up all of my time, um, Apprentices-ly, apprentices passionately want their friends to know Jesus. The Bible gives us this five-fold model of how this works. And we've also discussed some practical tips that we might put into practice to get started. But I want to leave you with this question. Because for me, um, hearing this stuff sounds really good, but then I'll often walk away and say, okay, now what? Now, now what do I do? I actually want to give us some time to think about that. So what I want to do to end with is ask two questions I'll explain the two questions, and I just want you to turn and take the next couple minutes uh, and answer these questions with those around you. The first question is, do you really believe that Jesus is worth it? Do you really believe that Jesus <clears throat> is the one who's met all of your needs? That he's the one that's come, he's died for you, he's risen again, and he offers you life in his name. 
and that that has changed everything for you? And do you believe that so much that he is also that answer for those around you in your life? Do you believe Jesus is worth it? Secondly, if so, what step do you need to take this week to live out that truth out loud? Maybe it's something that you wrote down, or maybe it's something that came into your mind as we've just shared or um, looked at these stories. But what's a a step? I'm not saying that you have to go out and stand on a street corner uh, and start telling everybody about Jesus. But what's one thing that you can start doing even this week to bring your friends to Jesus? So turn to someone next to you, answer those two questions, and after a few moments, the band will come up and we'll end by singing together. Ready? Go. Go.